You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Without further ado, let us get into the Word of God. We are in the book of Philippians. Uh, We started it last week, if you weren't here. So we're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 today. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. And if you weren't here the last few weeks, uh, we changed to the new uh, international version, NIV, from the New Living Translation. And so we do have Bibles on the back tables if you don't have NIV, but as always, we have it on the PowerPoint as well. But um, let me pray for our time, and then we'll get into it. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you, uh, just as we heard about the favor that you've given us here, we thank you for the partnership and what you're doing in this church and in the community, and we're so thankful that you've placed us here at this time for your glory. And God, as we endeavor to read your word today, we pray that you would speak to us through it. God, we don't want anything less than what you want for us. Help us to keep attentive, help us to learn, help us to uh, understand what it is that you want from us, Lord, and how good you are. We pray that we would see the goodness of God today, that we would not only learn of it with our head, but it would connect to our heart, that we would know that you are a faithful God, you are faithful to your people. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we we dove into the book of Philippians, and it was like a super broad introduction, higher than a 30,000-foot view of the book of Philippians. We looked at the book of Philippians in light of actually the whole Bible, uh, what literary style it was, and the context of it. And what we learned, what it boiled down to, we learned that the book of Philippians is actually a letter. And it's a letter that's penned by Paul in a Roman prison to a group of believers at a church that he started in a town called Philippi, the first church in Europe that Paul had started some 10 years prior. And unlike many of Paul's letters, this one's a very enduring, uh, endearing one, excuse me. This is directed to the leadership, the deacons and the elders and the church at Philippi, and he knew them very well. He had started it. He had seen the formation of it with Lydia and the jailer and the demon-possessed woman from Acts chapter 16. He was there at the start, and it's been more than a decade now, and they're still going. They're still following the Lord. And Paul has a deep affection in his heart for this church. He has a personal affection. He loves them very much. And this letter is out of a personal connection, thanking them, but also encouraging them to keep on growing in the likeness of Christ. If you weren't here last week, please go back and listen to that podcast um, so you can learn more. But if last week was a broad overview, we really didn't get into any of the context of the actual letter. Today, we we endeavor to do that. And what I want to do is I want to show you a video right now. And it's a nine-minute video. I know. This is like a year's worth of video for you. But you can do it. I believe in you. You can do it. Um, This video is really well done. It's done by an organization called The Bible Project. Some of you guys know it and love it. Uh, You should. It's awesome. They do these really well-done animated videos of every book of the Bible and also themes through the Bible. And they have a 
a video on the book of Philippians, and it pretty much just tells you what the book of Philippians is about, the context of it, the content, uh, in nine minutes, way better than I could. And so we'll, we'll go from there, we'll watch it, and then we'll dig into verses three through six. Sound good? If we can hear it. Uh, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, but here is the context, here's the video. Um, here we go. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. 
and that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1 through 3, and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. 
Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. Good, right? Maybe? Yeah? <laughs> you made it through? No, it's an amazing way to put it in nine minutes of like what is happening. And as we endeavor to jump into context, um, we're going to be referring to that again. But uh, feel free to go bioproject.com and check out other videos they have. But let, let's read verses one through six for context, and I just want to unpack it a bit. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. This text is so potent to me. Uh, in 12 years ago, on June 4th, 2006, yes, I know the day. It's because it was my first day of work at Reality. Uh, in full-time ministry as a 21-year-old, um, I was given a Bible. I still have that Bible, but I've read it and taught out of it a lot. It has, no longer has the cover. But on the, um, the front page where you write your name, it's, it's given by the staff at Reality at the time. It says, I think I have a picture. Do I have it up here? Maybe? Okay, there it is. To Ryan, this is kind of pre-Riz. Well, kind of like, I don't know. I was kind of Riz, but not on the Bible. So uh, June 4th, 2006, the staff at Reality, there's only like six of us. This is like right after Reality LA had started. There was no other realities. Britt wrote Philippians 1, 3 through 6 in this. And for me, as a 21-year-old, young, timid pastor... 
Well, I didn't think of myself that way at all as a pastor. Right, given middle school and high school and just given the reins, um, I felt so ill-equipped and overwhelmed and so uncertain of the future. And in that moment, this was really comforting, right? This truth that Paul reminds the Philippians today was so, it was so comforting to me 12 years ago that God who began the work, it's God who began it, God who's doing it, and God will finish it. These truths have been so comforting to me, and I never would have thought that I ever would have like started a church and been a church planner and gone through like 12 years of ministry and still I'm alive. And I never would have thought of that. But this word specifically, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, this reminder, this encouragement that God is faithful to continue the work has started is so personal. And I can stand here today with a personal testimony that God's word has come to pass in my own life. It's true, it's real, it's happened. He's promised something and he's good on his promises. And this truth, the greatest part is that this truth isn't only for me in my life. It's for all of us. Not only from Paul to the Philippians, not only from me, from Brit, it's from God to all of us that God is faithful. The work that he has started, that he is doing, that he's not done with us. He hasn't finished. He's not given up. He is still at work. And when it comes to us and God, we need to know at least these three things, but obviously not limited to them. That God does not forget us, God does not give up on us, and God does not get fed up with us. And it's important that we look at Paul and the Philippians and we use this as a case study, but knowing that it's true about us and God as well. It's very important that we understand that God does not forget us. You know, it's, it's this real thing that happens with the relationships in our life it's a saying because it happens so much. Out of sight, out of mind. You don't mean to. Maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't purpose in it, but you, you move away or, you know, you graduated college or your family's here or your friends move apart. And all of a sudden, you're just not thinking about them anymore. And so the relationship kind of dissipates. Out of sight, out of mind. Also, what happens in relationships, you know this well, is we just get really busy and we just... Forget about things, forget about people, or stuff and people just aren't important enough for us, and so we forget about them. They're just not in our lives. They're just not part of it. This is normal. This is, this is normal for relationships. Well, with God, that is not a part of his nature. There's no, like, forgetting. There's no out of sight, out of mind. There's no, like, you're not important enough for me anymore. He is unlike all our ideas or perceptions of any authority figure that we've ever known, right? Because we have perceptions that, you know, our parents or our loved ones or whoever it is, well, you know what? They always leave. Or maybe we're jaded and like, you know what? It never lasts. Or, or, or you have broken relationships or your best friend stabbed you in the back. Whatever the story is, we all have them. We're used to that things don't last, People forget, people change, relationships stop. 
But with God, that is not true. It is, un, it is not even a part of his nature to do that. He is so much better and he's so much different than any parental and authority figure than we could ever know. God is perfectly present all the time. I don't know if you've read the book. What, what is it called? Perfect over present? What is it called? Present over perfect? Anybody read that book? I haven't. Okay, nobody's read it, so it's not going to work. But um, God, the, the whole point is, you know, be present and don't be perfect. Be in the moment. It's good. But God is both. He's perfect and present all the time. God doesn't get distracted. God doesn't get caught up with something else. God does not forget any of us. And this is because God is all-knowing, right, omniscient. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. He's all-present, omnipresent. Like, this is a part of God's character. He's God, all God, all the time, for all time. He's everywhere, all the time. It isn't in his nature. He cannot forget about us. We can't be out of sight. We can't be out of mind because God is always present. And this is a crucial part of God's character that we're so good at forgetting. We're so good at basing our life upon our feelings that when we feel like God isn't around, we believe that and we say God isn't around anymore because we feel like he isn't. But the truth that resounds in scripture over and over is that God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. One of my favorites A.W. Tozer says it this way, describing omnipresence. He says, omnipresence means that God is all present. God is close to, for that is what the word means, close to, near to, here, everywhere. He is near to everything and everyone. He is here. He is next to you wherever you may be. If you send up the furious question, oh God, where art thou? The answer comes back, I am where you are. I'm here. I'm next to you. I'm close to you everywhere. If there were any borders to God, if there were any place where God is not, then that place would mark the confines or limits of God. And if God had limits, God could not be the infinite God. In his nature, it is not true to believe for any moment, whether you feel like it or not, that God has forgotten about you. It cannot be done. You cannot break that relationship. And even though you may not feel like it, God is with you. The second thing that we need to be reminded of or we need to walk in and live out is that God does not give up on us. God does not gauge his interest upon us by our performance. This is such good news, right? Whether we're engaged in the mission of God or quote unquote being a good Christian or not, that does not determine how much interest God has in you. Are you an amazing Christian? Are you doing everything? Are you awesome? Are you like standing out? God doesn't have that scale, God doesn't have that gauge. Now, that doesn't mean that God just wants us to stay where we're at and never grow and stay in our sin. And no, He wants us, He wants so much for us. He wants us to be freed from sin. He wants us to grow in the likeness of Christ. He wants us. But whether or not he's interested in us is not gauged on our performance. 
And if you're a human being, you know from every single outlet that our culture is based on performance. Whether or not you get that job is based on your resume and your experience and your performance. And you're not, you don't get the job because maybe you didn't perform well and your resume wasn't good enough. But what happens when you're at that job, you got to perform or else you're going to get fired from the job you just got. Perform. Sports team, you got to perform or else you get cut or else you get on the bench. Everywhere you look, right, in schools, you got to know, like, what you want to do by, like, middle school now. Because you need to, you know, actually, like, now it's, now it's preschool, right? You got, actually, now it's, like, before the kid's even born. You got to apply for, like, Punahou, and then, when, you know, just to get in. And then you got to do this to get into the college. Because, so you need to know what your kid wants to do before your kid is born. That's just kind of how it works these days. So everything about that is perform, 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 perform. And your value in society today is gauged on performance. And really what happens to your identity is, is you feel like you can only be valuable if you perform well. Well, God does not work that way. That's not how it works. That's not how he works. That's not what he thinks. That's not how he acts. God is so much more forgiving and gracious than you could ever imagine, and our performance and our interest is not gauged on performance. The thing about God is that he sent his son to die on a cross to do the work so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be fully accepted and not having to strive on our own to be some super Christian. God did the work on the cross through his son. He did it so that we could receive and walk in fullness of joy and in freedom in our God. So when God sees us, there's not a list, a performance chart, an SAT, or whatever you call it now. Do you not even call it that anymore? Is it a new test? I don't know, whatever. God's not looking at the GPA. He's not looking at the school you went to. He's not looking at your performance. He's looking at you with the father's eyes to his dear son and daughter. God does not give up on us. Every other thing in the world wants to tell you, well, that's how it works. You gotta perform. That's not true with the Lord. God also doesn't get fed up with us. Like, right, if we bug, if we're annoying, if we just do everything wrong all the time, right? Like, God's word's really clear, and then we just botch it. Out of wrong motives, with wrong intentions, you know, if we're just like, just really annoying, God doesn't get annoyed. God, God doesn't get bugged. Even if we have wrong ways and wrong motives and do things wrong, God will always be there with us and for us. We also live in a culture that's pretty quick to be done with stuff if we just don't like it. We've unfortunately lost quite a bit of loyalty and perseverance and commitment, right? That's the, that's the big joke, and maybe there's truth to it, with like just sweeping statements of millennials and the culture that we live in. is like, and part of it is the world we live in now, those things have eroded because when things get hard, 
We just jump ship. And this happens a lot in marriages, with divorce. Uh, it happens with friendships. It happens with relationships. happens with jobs. happens with commitments. Right? There's this thing now that's embedded to us that that's okay. That this is the norm. That if we just don't like something, we just give up on it. That is not true with God. Like God does not think that way. God does not act that way. God is always willing to work with us and for us. This should be good news. Because a lot of times we're so messy and we're so disobedient. And a lot of times we're like, yeah, we do everything wrong. God is so much more patient and long-suffering than anyone you can even imagine. And on God's end, he's not going anywhere. Like, he's not going anywhere. He's not ditching the relationship. He's in this relationship, and he's here to stay. Like, he's like, you can't get rid of me. You can't bug me. I won't forget about you. I won't give up on you. My love for you is unconditional. That is because God can be all of those things to us because he's faithful. He's faithful. This is what Paul is reminding the church in Philippi. Philippi, have you not forgotten? Even though it's hard, even though you're going through hardships, God will not forget you. He'll never give up on you, and he can't get fed up with you because he's faithful. He finishes what he starts. God is the definition of faithfulness. Look it up. There's his picture. Nah, it's not going to be probably, but that's what it is. God is faithful. That is his nature. There's no shadow in his turning. There's no veering or changing of his character. He is immutable. He cannot change. Over time, over circumstances, he is unchanging. A few verses, there's a lot more in scripture, but here's a few verses to, to tell us this. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that your Lord, your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Over and over and over, we've seen that God is faithful to his people. Once again, from his book, Attributes of God, A.W. Tozer says this about faithfulness. He says, faithfulness is that in God, it guarantees that he will never be or act inconsistent with himself. You can put that down as an axiom. It is good for you now and is good for you when you are dying. It will be good to remember as you rise from the dead and it will be good for all the eons and millenniums to come. God will never cease to be what he is and who he is. Everything God says or does must be in accord with his faithfulness. He is always uh, true to himself, to his works, and to his creation. Like, he can't not be faithful to his people. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, be confident in this, that God is faithful to complete the work that he started in each of us. That was to the church at Philippi, but here is to the church in Honolulu right now. 
What God is saying to us individually and us as a church, he's saying the work that I've started in each of you, I am going to be faithful to complete that work and nothing will stop me. I care, I love, I'm concerned, I'm all about you, I'll never forget, I'll never get fed up. You can't do anything to stop this. I am faithful, I'm in this and I'll never stop. If you're listening to this, you know, many of you may not feel like this. Or you might be like, that's not true. I haven't experienced that. You know, maybe there was one time in my life I had a season where I thought this or I felt this way. Right? I felt like God was moving and it was a season of flourishing and hope. And maybe that was when you first became a believer, or maybe it was just like everything was going well in your life, or maybe it was this last season or the last church, whatever it was. There may have been a season where you're like, man, God is moving. We experienced God. We had hope and for what is next. But all of a sudden, like life has happened. And now we're in a funky place, or you're stagnant, or you're apathetic, or things have changed. When I'm saying this right now, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't feel that way. And perhaps you're even doubtful. You're jaded. Maybe you're disillusioned, which has left you in a season of being depressed and wandering and hopeless. And you may be asking the question, is God done with me? Is God done with me? I don't feel him. I don't experience him. There was a time I did have a season. Everything was this, and now it's not. And if that season goes on for any amount of time, you may be feeling like this. Is God done with me? Where are you, God? Are you finished with me? Are you fed up? We know the answer is no. I am here. I am right where you are. What I can tell you is that there are seasons of life that we all go through that may feel like this. Most, if not all, of the biblical characters have seasons like this, where everything's not going well, they're not experiencing the Lord. It's not a season of flourishing, and it's not a season of hope. King David, right? A man after God's own heart, like King David. Well, he fell. Bathsheba, sexual sin, murder her husband, and was in a real dark, low season thinking that God was done with him. We know the story. God wasn't done with him. Moses and the children of Israel, I mean, think about that. God miraculously frees them from Egypt, and the Red Sea is parted, and then what happens for 40 years? Wandering in the desert for 40 years. Don't you think that every single one of the children of Israel was like, God, where are you? How could you do this? They were, they were saying that. God, we would rather be in slavery and die there than be here and die here. Children of Israel, all of God's people were in this season wondering, God, are you done with me? Paul has been in and out of that his entire walk with Jesus. From the road to Damascus to the day he dies, he's in a perpetual, like, my life is hard. It's bad. It's difficult. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. Paul's in and out of seasons like this. If you know anything about church history, you know anything about like the, these radical missionaries that go 
to the ends of the earth, and so much fruit has come for that. Every single one of them has the most horrific stories. Years on end where some go crazy, some suffer incredible suffering, incredible loss. Deep seasons of doubt and questioning. But whether it's church history or in scripture or our own testimonies, what we always see, and I'm saying always see, 100% of the time, is that God always comes through. God always restores hope. He always has more in store. Why is that? It's because when God is in control, nothing is wasted. When God is in control, which he is, then nothing, no season, no job, no lack of job, no lack of money, whatever it is, nothing, nothing in your life is wasted because God is in control and when we're waiting, he's working. You can take that to the bank. Test it. God is always faithful. God wants to give you what matters most, and that's himself. What I'm not preaching here is I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel, like health and wealth, like God's going to give you everything, and your life's going to be amazing, and you're going to just have all this stuff, and all your dreams are going to come true. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God knows what's best for you, He's intimately acquainted with all your ways, and he's able and willing and faithful to do everything you need to get himself. He is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest joy we have. He is the peace that we all want. He is the stability. He is our strength, and he is our rock. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else will pass away. Practically, what that means is that God is not done with us. He's not done redeeming us and restoring us. Like, he still wants to exchange your beauty for ashes. He still wants to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Right? He wants to make you whole. He wants to bring you joy and give you peace. Like, that's still here for you. God still wants that for you. He's not done. He's not given up. We say that false narrative. We, we preach that to ourselves so well. We walk in that because we feel like he is. But the truth is, is that there's always more and there's always better. And it's, he's not done till God says he's done. Like he's not done till God says he's done. And God says, I'm not done. And he's faithful to complete the work that he started. God has a promise to be faithful. We see that in the life of the church uh, in Philippi, that God has carried them through some of the hardest persecution. Paul, writing the letter, can testify that God has carried me through and he's continued to work in my life. And we sitting here in this room, we can expect that for us as well. We should expect in confidence that God is going to fulfill his promise because God can't help but do it, right? God must be true to himself. And when God makes a promise, he has to keep that promise. Like he has no choice not to because his nature is one of faithfulness. 
And so my encouragement and my exhortation, the take home right now, is to not lose hope. Like, look to the one who's writing your life story and our story and allow God to move and speak for your life. What I've seen since the first day, uh, June 4th, 2006, when this same promise was written in this Bible, is that God has done exceedingly abundantly above all I can hope, ask, or imagine. And even in the midst of some really dark, hard, tragic, rough seasons, that none of it has ever been haphazard. Every single thing is for a purpose. God is writing this story. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is wasted because he is in control. And you may have heard the saying, trust the process, right? Trust the process, trust what's going on. I have a better saying. Trust the person that's in control of the process. Trust that God knows what he's doing and he has not left you, he's not given up, and he's not fed up with you. He is right here where he's always been, amen? Amen. God, thank you. Thank you for this truth that you've reminded us of this morning. Thank you that there is nowhere that we can run, there's nowhere we can hide, that you are completely faithful. And God, for those of us in this room that what we're feeling is maybe contradictory to this, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a new way and you, by your presence, remind us of these truths that we just read. God, would you give us the faith to trust and believe in your word even though we may not be experiencing what we're reading? God, thank you that you desire so much for each one of us, that you desire for each of us to be whole and restored and repaired. And so God, we pray that you would do that now as we worship you, as we spend a few songs declaring your goodness, we pray that you'd continue to speak to us. And as we reflect on what you've, you've said, we ask that we'd respond to you in this time of worship. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You guys, I just want to encourage you to take this time um, to really like do work with the Lord right now, like to commune with him. Sin messes us up. And maybe your past, maybe what you've gone through, maybe what you've just currently gone through has just left you broken and just whether stuff's been done to you or you've done stuff, whatever it is, like God wants to God wants to meet you and heal you and restore you and redeem you and he is a perfect loving father that has the best intentions for you and does not want to hurt you. And so as we spend this time worshiping, let's commune with the Lord. Let's pray. Let's listen. Let's turn to someone next to us and ask for prayer. Let's let's respond and commune with the Lord right now. Amen. Man, let's do it.